Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of the Happy Vagina podcast has been brought to you by Venus. Venus, the number one female razor brand in the world, is introducing a new way to care for your pubic hair and skin with the new Venus for Pubic Hair and Skin collection. Despite many women regularly removing their pubic hair, many don't feel comfortable discussing pubic grooming or the issues they face when doing so. Although nearly three quarters of women believe that they should be able to use words like vagina and pubic in public without feeling shame, nearly half of women say they've been made to feel these aren't appropriate words to use in public. With the new range, Venus wants to legitimise conversations about the pubic area to remove the taboo around pubic language and grooming, encouraging women to free the vulva, that's hashtag free the vulva, and speak openly and honestly about their pubic hair and skin. Welcome to the Happy Vagina, a podcast dedicated to celebrating pioneers in the female space who have made a difference in women's health, equality and relationships. Each week, we chat to an inspiring human being as they explore the experiences that completely change their outlook, promising not only to educate, but also to enlighten and to entertain. And this week on the Happy Vagina, we have the goddess that is Erin O'Connor MVE, mother British high fashion model, mentor, writer and all-round fashion pioneer who has weathered the storm of the fashion industry maintaining a fantastic career in the face of much change and holding the industry accountable for its unachievable fashion ideals with her initiative All Walks Beyond the Catwalk and she is also an ambassador for Save the Children and Born Charity which is a medical research charity with the mission of ending premature birth. Erin O'Connor, I feel unbelievably honoured to have you here. Welcome to the Happy Vagina. Well, I'm quite nervous because it's been many years. Um, and when you first asked me, I was really flattered because I love your page because it's my output to go, yes! Yeah, I know. Thank you for having me. I feel really chuffed to actually have a direct conversation with you, Mika, because we've sort of been shouting and going back and forth with quotes and promises of putting things on t-shirts here we are erin erin erin's favorite thing for those listening to do is i post something on our instagram account and goes put it on a t-shirt i think i think i think i think there might be a collaboration brewing here the first time i met you erin was at a gala for my charity that I started for my late mother who who died of ovarian cancer. And of course, I knew who you were uh, because you had had a great deal of success while I was still at university, even though we're the same age. I, I was, I, I knew who you were, but you, I had this 
small chat with you in the middle of this huge ballroom. It was only a moment or two and you looked me in the eyes and I thought, who is this woman? Who is this woman? I need to know this woman because it was a quality of interest and gentleness and power, power that I was really, I just, I find your your femininity and your strength really inspiring. And I don't think that, I think it's something to aspire to as a woman. And I think that women who really know how to be women hold both those spaces. But I think it is definitely something that we grow into as women. Certainly. I I, I couldn't agree more. And thank you for such a kind and and generous um, intro. And I think also, I'm glad we had that exchange. And um, it has always meant so much to me to connect with women. Mm. You know, I, I am quite a private person, but mm. I'm always completely with my women friends. Mm-hmm. As I live longer, I appreciate them more. And I've got two sisters, one older, one younger, and we're not together at the moment. It's been a quiet form of torture because we are really close. Mm. But we've become closer during the whole pandemic. Mm. And I realise increasingly as I live longer how much women mean to me. Mm. Mm, mm. you have had a similar upbringing to me we're both from Irish working class backgrounds and one of the things that you've talked about is the fact that you had you didn't feel there was space to have a voice my my mother uh rejected Catholicism and went guns blazing into the feminist movement she was like fuck this shit so I was raised by a woman who has had a she was conflicted to a certain extent by the fact that she still carried many of the deep-rooted Catholic Irish um, restrictions and ideals, but also she was um, a leading force within the feminist movement. For you, from what I understand of you, you, you've you've taken longer slightly to find your voice. And I wondered if there has been something in your life that that has significantly changed your relationship to yourself as a woman Erin yes um well where do I begin and I think probably the most interesting part of my life so far is where it began Mm. Mm. um I grew up kind of in the outskirts of Birmingham on a small contained council estate Mm. and I would say probably 50% of us were of Irish descent Mm. So there was um, an omnipresent religious theme. We all went to the same Catholic school. We went to the same Catholic church. And I was struck quite early on um, the impact of what serious imagery was doing to me. And it was all about a man. (laughs) It was all about the man. Mm. And... The Virgin Mary was a constant source of supposed inspiration as girls. Something to uh, be inspired by or Mm. to aspire to be like. That the idea of compliance was a good girl trait. Mm. And um, I'd love to say I rallied against that idea, but I was, um, I think, a true uh, template for somebody that became... I was very timid, I was very shy, and so I became quite meek. Mm. And I think in my defence, 
I was very overwhelmed by the sort of serious nature of all of the imagery mm. that surrounded me. It was about death. It was about guilt. It was about our saviour, Jesus Christ. Mm. And <laughs> I remember feeling um, really pleased when I was 11 that I'd been selected to crown the Virgin Mary. Mm which was a ritual every leaving schoolgirl had. Only one person was selected before we went to senior. And two weeks before, I broke my arm playing football. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. <laughs> Let's talk about the accidental rebellion in that, in that moment. Okay? I mean... So I couldn't lift my arms up to put the crown on oh. Virgin Mary. Oh, and Aaron. it was wonky and it wasn't quite right. And the, the congregation, I could feel the tension in the room. But in hindsight, it will never not make me smile because it was my first, maybe accidental, but anarchic stand nonetheless. She's a woman her crown's not straight, get over it. Plus, and, and, it, and it was created by you playing football, which is yes. you know, the start of that story because yes. when we were young, girls did not play soccer or football. No, no they didn't. But I think where we lived, it was great because if you wanted to entertain yourself, you just played with everybody else on the estate. So, mm. you know, in mm. summer you played um, tennis mm. and football. And in the winter, you, you you played tennis and football. I mean, you were literally just shopped outside the house so that mm. your folks could get on with doing what they needed to do, all weathers. But there must have been that kind of... Because um, I see you today. So this woman that I read about a little bit um, in preparing for this podcast and who you just described, who who was a bit a bit uh, fragile and shy I just don't know I mean I, I I see you today as a as a fully rounded woman who of course can access those experiences and emotions because it's important for us as human beings to have the full gauntlet of of access of emotions however I see you as such a a, a warrior you're just a living walking breathing feminist and I but I and I also know that at the start of your career and we're going to come back to this in terms of kind of identity politics and the identity yes, that was yes. put on you. But one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about was your choice to become a mother quite late because I just, Charlotte Riley, who is uh, an actress in Peaky Blinders, who I don't know, but just last week, she has yet again written an open letter to the government, not her yet again, but just women in general, suggesting that yes. perhaps uh, children should be, uh, babies should be allowed on film sets. So there should be creches within our within our work. And I would, I would admit um, in my complex history of why I haven't had children, that not being right. able, that me being the only person that makes money for me has definitely had an impact on my choice to have children or not. So it's more complicated than that. But you've spoken quite a lot about that, that you decided to have children quite late because you you knew that it would completely change your life and your career. and yes. And that feels like a really... Um, a very consciously thought out thing. Do you remember being frustrated in the lead up to that, that you had to almost choose between one or the other? Well, also it, it, it is to do with my personal feelings on 
motherhood. And my sister and I talk about this quite openly. She was a teenager when she had my nephew. And so, you know, I remember sharing a room with my sister and my nephew. Yeah. So whenever I was studying, she was mothering. And there's only three years between Mm. us. And um, I fell deeply in love um, with my sister after Mm. that. Of course, as well as the baby, mm. because I admired her so much, um, because I knew it was something I couldn't do yet. And I think that stayed with me for quite a long time. And she still is and remains one of the best, coolest moms in the mm. world. So she was kind of my template. But what I understood from that moment was just that I wouldn't be able to mother until I was mm. ready. But it's a cautionary tale because... You can get so caught up in your ambition. And and what I mean by that is a kind of a healthy ambition. There were certain goals that I really wanted to achieve in my Mm. life. And the first was to be self-sufficient. And the second was to um, own my own home. Mm. And I think the most important was to buy the house I grew up in. Mm. Because... My family worked really hard mm. and they were all intelligent, capable people. And yet we, we didn't have the resources to buy our own home. Mm. So that, that, that was also a goal. It was sort of a way of keeping our family together. And is this the home up in Birmingham? Yes, yes. And, um, you know, via my job, I was able to kind of make that happen. And, th- and that meant an awful lot to me. And so I set off on this path of desperately trying to build on my self-esteem and confidence, which I would outrightly say has been hard-earned over the mm. years. And a lot of that has come from me. But a lot of it comes from other people's expectations of you. Um, and often with or without realizing they impose limitations on you before you've been able to recognize what they are for yourself. Mm. So it's a combination of control Mm. and, and um, it doesn't necessarily make you feel emboldened to stick your head above the parapet. Mm. However, interestingly, my body became my saving grace because it looks very commanding. Mm. Uh, I, I can look authoritative, mm. even when I'm thinking about what I need to add to the Ocado shopping list before it arrives on a Monday morning. And I do understand the power of my body and the physicality of it and what it has contributed to towards my industry. So in terms of imagery and the importance of narrating a story in 2D form and having a, your audience connect with you, whether it's um, you know, like a live audience or it's in the pages of a magazine, has always been really consciously important mm. to me. First of all, I'm um, a mad but reluctant show-off. <laughs> so I physically really need to perform. I need to move my body. It's the only way I can kind of – it's like – getting your emotions flowing I need to move before I can speak wow so for the first 10 years of my career I feel I I really spoke in 2d4 through your body but nonetheless yeah nonetheless um 
I wanted to always create an empowered image, not to um, distance myself from women, but also to just to try to really connect with them. Because I think quite early on, I'd heard a lot of um, damaging advice on how I could better myself or if I could just do that or if I didn't do that or if I was different and you know I've talked a lot about this in the press over the years but but it it still stays with me in the same way I've just worked through it a lot more and the first was fix your nose and the second was get a boob Mm. job and how old were you when when you when you when I was a teenager Uh, I was a teenager so I want to be really honest here because I think I'm better when I tell Mm. the truth. Um, I'm always tempted to say what I think is the right thing Mm. that's going to sound articulate or have Mm. meaning. But when you tell the truth, I think you get to a better Mm. ending and I think everyone then benefits from Mm. that. I didn't disagree with them. Mm. I was already cut up that Oh my god, I'm six foot and my boobs still haven't arrived. I don't think it was you that didn't agree with them. I think it was the you. It was the you that that had already been squeezed into a version of you that wasn't you. Well, this this is a really really good conversation. This is when I miss being in a room with someone because I'd already gotten over that battle of thinking, oh god, you know, it is quite gutting when the version you see of womanhood. You know, symbolically, it's our boobs. Yes, yes. And they didn't arrive. And though I felt feminine, I could describe um, my emotions of how sensual I have always felt. And I'm sensitive and I'm I'm far more comfortable and appreciative of my sensitivity. But when you don't have those obvious attributes, it's very difficult then to boundary other people. So I'd worked through the fact that, yes, I have a prominent nose, and I'd worked through the fact that, no, my boobs never appeared. So interestingly, something really important happened, and it helped me, which is why it's important. When somebody else told me what was wrong with me, I was very able to put them in their place. Ah. And, and that felt really, really Even good. from a young it age? It was a bit of a game changer. Yeah, you don't get to tell me what you think is wrong with my body. This is my body and it's working for me. But how old were you when you when you were able to be that vocal about what was okay and not okay for your own body, Erin? Because you, you were picked up by a model scout quite young. Yes. On the street, right? Yes, yeah. Um, I was 17 and then I moved down to London full-time when I was 18. So was it, were you that young when people were suggesting to you that you should alter your, your look? Um, I would say about a year in when I started to travel, it's it's so interesting, depending on where you go, there's a very specific ideal of beauty in the world. The beauty market is, they have a very definitive representation of how they think women should look. So I was on set in LA when I was advised by a male <laughs> that I should get my boobs mm. done. Um, and equally, I've had women tell me that, well, you get your boobs done now, you're working less. What? Now? Uh, I, and I, uh, uh, yeah, and I said, I don't understand your question. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not being passive aggressive, I'm just being very open. So 
the implication there is you're implying that there's something wrong with yeah. me and that because I don't necessarily look like you, yeah. that I'm less of a woman. Yeah. And actually that's smart when you love and admire and respect women because um, – it's not, it's not me that actually detaches from fellow women. It often has been a feeling of not being accepted equally by men yeah. and, and women. Yeah. And also within the industry that you work in, it's about beauty standards. And of course, you're not the first of um, the women who have come through within uh, the entertainment and modelling industry who has been a representation of something different to the standard we've had Catherine Hepburn before you and men you know who ref- who refused to not dress like at the beginning of her career people told her she she was too masculine and dressed like a man she was like yes I do I think thank you very much I'm just going to carry on you know you're not the first but you I think that you you've made such a difference about beauty standards Erin because your career has sat alongside a period of time when the internet arrived. So back then in Catherine's days, all of the all PR and publicity was very much controlled by the studios. So it's only kind of through biographies that we learn about these people. Whereas you from from a very right from the beginning of your career have championed women not sitting inside a kind of 2.4 bracket is that how you describe it just kind of the standards the the beauty standards of the of the industry i suppose probably for me one of the most interesting questions around that erin is was it okay for you so you've just talked about really um coming into your own and putting your foot down and saying don't don't put your don't put your judgments and your assessment of my body on me but you were also and I had a bit of this at the beginning of my career where people said I was kind of the posh one and I was a bit like but I'm not I'm like I come from I it's like these these the this pigeonholing that happens do you remember what it was like for you I know that you said that you enjoyed playing the quite iconic, aristocratic, diva character. But was it okay for you psycho-emotionally that you were being described in a way as other, capital O, other, yeah. the best form of other? Yeah. Was it really okay for you? I, I think that's a brilliant question. Thank you, first of all. I don't know if I enjoyed um, necessarily playing into the idea of aristocracy or or, or uh, iconic figures, particularly with iconic figures, so Nefertiti, Martha Graham, um, you know, very strong hysterical historical Athena. And you've got, yeah, <laughs> and then you've got three minutes to interpret what that looks like. You know, there's no rehearsal, there's no guidance. We don't have a director. It's based on instinct and actually going away and doing a lot of research and homework. Mm. That's my preferred way of preparing for a role. To anyway, be thorough. But what I enjoyed was was the play on people assuming my identity. Mm. Um, so as soon as I landed in America, I mean, clearly I was obviously related to the Queen <laughs> and I must, I must have been a blue blood because I was British and I played along with it. I, I, I didn't feel in any way I was betraying my background, but rather enjoying this sort of um, 
need or pe- people needed to necessitate the idea of me mm. and what they wanted me mm. to be. And I think as long as you're in on the yeah. joke, that's really okay. Yeah. And there is something that is is um, a real confidence boost when your body, um, it, 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 your mind and your heart and your feelings might be in a different place, but it's like a light switch. Mm. I go into performance mode and I'm not even on the stage yet, by the way. I'm just walking into the mm. room, feeling the weight of expectation. Mm. Mm. And um, I, I can become that woman. And I suppose what was important to me as I was younger was to make a very, very conscious, clear distinction. Mm. Mm. And there's no harm in feeling like you're a woman that can't be messed mm. with when you walk into a room. Mm. Um, even though you may not be feeling that way on the mm. inside. I think as a young teenager, I felt my body was betraying me, but what it was actually doing was emboldening. Yeah. Yeah. It just took my mind and body quite a while to insane which I think is so true for all women I mean I think for all of us I mean you know every time I read a statement mostly by someone in the public eye but whether it be that or from a girlfriend or in a biography with a woman saying life gets better as you get older I think when I was younger I was a bit like yeah whatever and now that I'm in my late 40s I'm like oh yes okay I'm like really enjoying this this now you you said that you um you mentioned that it was okay because you were kind of in on the game. So it feels like you had some control over it. It was a choice. But I also know that we are exceptionally lucky to have you on the podcast today because there was a point when you decided that, I wouldn't say that you didn't want to play the game anymore because you still have this huge career and, and, and are very sought after as a model. But I do feel that there was potentially a point when you decided you no longer wanted to be quite as exposed. So would you say that you didn't really want to play the game anymore because the game was no longer a game that was benefiting you spiritually? I do think my privacy means a lot to me. It feels that with my job title and and where my image travels, it's the only thing I can maintain and Mm. control. You know, Mm. the output of words I say, I appreciate travel everywhere and people may or may not be interested but Mm. um I ended up a bit um in a very sort of politicized spot for quite some time regarding the modeling industry and Mm. models health Mm. and um I by the end of it all of years and years and years of um being subjected to daily um opinions on my brain and my body Mm. Um, it was quite traumatic Mm. it was and and I definitely suffered um, in fact I know I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress Mm. holding a very public politicized Mm. space and I think in order to carry a campaign often you need a person or a specific group of people Mm. and often you target them rather than facilitate them to give Mm. their experiences Mm. and so well um, everyone uses you actually the truth is Erin is you get yeah you are you are a pawn in a bigger picture but what you don't really appreciate at the time is is that they are kind of using you to promote whatever they their output looks like we are all victims of the the press the press machine decides what is the story of the day and then we're also expected to respond to it and we're left holding the expression of something that was quite heartfelt 
Um, yes, that's a really, really um, great way of putting it. And I think it's you sort of scramble to do the right thing. And mm. often you feel disingenuous mm. and something really matters to you if mm. if you're not saying actually what, what your true belief is. Mm. Mm. And, um, you know, these topics are everlasting. They don't mm. come and they don't go. And mm. sometimes by putting something in a grid in itself feels like a disservice to the, to the problematic mm. culture we're living in. Mm. Mm. I don't know if that makes sense to it you. It makes but complete then, sense to me. I've been literally just been thinking about it this last week. Well, so. I, I think I was no longer able to conceal <laughs> my, myself. Mm. So there were two things at play. One's practical and one is personal. Um, so the age of digital came mm. in and um, I started to feel very uh, annoyed is a polite word. Mm. Whenever I worked, um, I really missed the freedom of film working on film because you never got to see what was happening. It was a performance that was caught in 2D form, yeah. but you were able to kind of relinquish control and really use your body to tell a story. It was theatre. It was theatre. It was theatre. And it needed to be theatre because it, it couldn't it, happen so quickly. Yeah. Because also the pictures really needed to have a story and they needed to come alive. And in my mind, they needed to inspire and they needed to connect with readers you know, that was the particular medium of performance that I work mm. in. And um, that really me means a lot to me still. Mm. So um, what I really, really disliked about working with digital is all of a sudden a whole crew of newly invented roles of people swooped round into the monitor mm. and were looking and fixating on negatives. Mm. That's not right. That needs to change. Can you move your arm 45 degrees? Ah. And it took away from the power, yeah. uh, spontaneity, yeah. and freedom of my choices. Yeah. Of, of how I interpreted. You started to judge yourself, or, or you had to work hard not to judge yourself. I, I had to work hard not to allow projections to feed too much into what I was yeah. doing. Yeah. So, so that was, that was really important. Um, and then I think personally, I had always respected the power of the press. Mm. Therefore, I'd never really dallied with them. Mm. Although on the other hand, I um, appreciate that, you know, whenever people are publicizing you, let's say that that's, um, or people may say that you're benefiting from that. My understanding is, or my position now on that is, um, I can't really do a good job if I don't believe in what I'm mm. doing. Therefore, it's a disservice to anybody um, reading what I'm saying. Mm. Um, because I don't feel, f I, I wasn't necessarily feeling um, that I could say what I truly mm. meant. And... Um, also, you know, I think 
we, we discussed it earlier, actually, didn't we? I think my privacy means an awful lot mm. to me. I think when your image is projected um, potentially all over the world, mm. the one thing you have is you. Mm. And um, so consciously, I've retained that furiously. And as I live longer, I appreciate the importance of holding on to me. And I think the reason I love the challenge of very extreme characters mm. is that it eventually leads me back to myself. Mm. That there are no blurry boundaries, mm. that the, the distinction is clear. And I'm never someone that's actually really sort of truly immersed myself in my industry. I appreciate it. There are elements of it that frustrate the hell out of me. There are people I really mm. love and, and admire and respect. But I've sort of always bobbed along on the periphery. I dip mm. in and I try my best and I work really hard. And then I have to come out and sort of spiritually just. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Do you know what's really interesting about these two topics that we've just touched on is you were talking about, so what I heard in your experience of digital was that the very profound and deep relationship between a photographer and a model got lost. That's right. But also what's happened with digital is that the very deep relationship between an interviewer and an interviewee has been lost because today... And I would say I do the same thing. But today, the way that one prepares to interview someone is one Googles someone. And so what I've seen with friends, and and I try very hard to work against it with the happy vagina because I'm so interested in people rather than in what people have said in a way. Like it's I try to kind of have the conversation around how people feel rather than their statements on stuff. However, I do start at that point. And what I see is that... so is that that you make a statement about something, for example, Erin, which I I won't pull one out of the sky, but you make a statement and then every single journalist that ever, ever interviews you again, what they do is they go and Google you to see what it is that you're about. And then they ask you the same questions. And then something that you may have said 10 years ago becomes who you are. That's right. And it's not necessarily relevant to how you've hopefully evolved Today. I think this is a very interesting um, uh, area for me, Erin. I can't believe I'm about to do this, but I am. Fuck it. Basically, I am going to quote something that, that I read of yours that I found 
I'm gonna I'm gonna ad lib quote it, which I did read, and I thought that's so shocking to me because you said in an interview, can't believe I'm doing this after what I've just said, but I'm gonna do it. Um, you, <laughs> you said in an interview, I don't have to answer or respond. You don't. You <laughs> yeah. don't. Yeah. You don't. Don't worry, it's not outrageous. It's actually really it okay. sort of um, it moved me in a way that I found unforgettable which is that it yeah. was and it was actually about the me too movement but you said that you felt that you you didn't have a place within the feminist movement or that it was something along those yeah. lines and that's what i'm picking up from what you're talking about that perhaps your image was being portrayed as something that was unobtainable is it that you felt that somehow or other you had become so far detached from uh it's not even real women but that somehow your I'm, image was being held at your image was being held up as a against them yeah yeah i mean let's look at the symbolism of being on a raised platform yeah. as well yeah. playing with very um some say iconic others would say grandiose and unapproachable right. so i was um i had my supporters who who were um the people I love and 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 the people that love me yeah. back and who know yeah. me, like my family yeah. and friends of forever. But I would be lying, I think, if I if I said that um, I was so used to being prejudged yeah. that wrongly, in hindsight, I had to work a bit too hard to um, you know me before I felt safe that the outcome outcome would be a positive right. one but then I think critically here it's important to give examples mm. of um a lot of female writing that there's been a really wonderful and I'm lucky and privileged enough to say that I've had um some very supportive people um women in particular um who have interviewed me but equally um it, it's really hurt when you know that whatever you're saying is not of interest because the pre-agenda is more important. Mm. So when I started the model sanctuary, that was based off of the back of um, a very public debate called the Size Zero Mm. Debate, um, of which, by the way, I was and am a supporter. I think we really needed to work on the inner workings Mm. of the fashion industry Mm. And actually the wellness of how we treat our younger participants. Mm. But to get to that point, I did a lot of um, anxiety, crying and soul searching Mm. um, because I was publicly used Mm. as a means of um, getting news out there, you know, sort of shocking headlines from she's probably got a furry back and she's got halitosis uh, she probably can't have children, and she's really thick. I am and slightly I'm gobsmacked. I, I, I mean, I don't read I'm that human. sort of press, so I, I, I didn't, I didn't I'm know human. that, and that's appalling. Yes. Um, I had a female journalist approach me, and it was very off guard. And she said, "How do you feel about yourself, knowing that young women look at you and they're killing themselves because they can't be like you?" And I understood in that moment that whatever I said would either be misinterpreted or not spoken as the truth. So the only thing I could do was say nothing at all. 
And sure enough, in the newspaper the following day, she wrote an article about me being so stupid mm. that I couldn't answer her mm. question, presumably because I hadn't got any GCSEs. Mm, 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 mm. So now when you're being um, used publicly to kind of fuel um, and keep the momentum mm. of a story going, mm. the fallout of that is that um, instead of me being responsive and open-minded to positive change in the industry, I sort of ran away and hid mm. for a mm. bit. I felt um, very traumatised. Mm. The, the humiliation of, of reading that I probably didn't get my period, mm. um, I was flat-chested. Mm. Um, and all of this because there was a suggestion that you were underweight. I mean, it was a it was it was actually what they were. Yes. They were so so you were given the the body that God gave you, and that had already yes. been under quite a lot of. You'd already had to do quite a lot of work yes. within your own yes. self yes. acceptance. Yes. We all do yes. as women. I'm the curvy one. I've got yes. I've got my version of yes. it. It doesn't really matter. Every single yes. human being on the planet yes. has shame around their body, and we are all on this planet to come to peace with our bodies. But then now you've That's got right. later on in your career when you're successful, they start to take you down and make a, some, a, new, a whole load of new assumptions, which is that you didn't get your period because you didn't eat. Is that what they were trying to suggest? Yes, yes, because um, I was underweight, therefore I couldn't have children. You can discuss my um, professional profile and my appeal, mm. if you will. Mm. You can like me or you can't. Mm. But in the end, I got there. You don't get to mess with my integrity. No, no. So I fought back. And is that when you Very started calmly. the model sanctuary? Is that how the model... That's so right. you've, got, you've got two really significant... I mean, I always have a moment when I want to cry. I know, you're going to make me cry too because it's been a long time. You really, you really, um, you know, you, you really do dedicate your life to helping women. I think that, you know, Beyond the Catwalk and, and, and Sanctuary are two projects that transformed the model industry and for those of let just because some people may never heard about them tell us a little bit about both of them of course so the model sanctuary was really born born <laughs> that was my first birth off of the back of um a lot of uh, negativity and pressure and i just thought it was all too easy and lazy i'm afraid to say to pinpoint um, one group of people as catalyst, or rather people to blame. And my issue was is that actually I agreed with a lot of the lack of healthcare plans and well-being and wellness um, that were not in place. However, you can't blame one set of people, mm. particularly vulnerable mm. people, mm. first and foremost, mm. They are human mm. beings. Their job title is to mm. model. But we needed to look at the industry as mm. a whole. Nobody could hold the weight of that responsibility, mm. nor should they. And, um, again, it's so important to tell the truth. I felt so out of my depth. I felt so out of my depth. Starting the project I, or in your work in general at that point in your career? Starting the project. Mm, yes, I know. I relate to that. <laughs> But then the doors keep opening, Erin, and people... <laughs> I know, I know. I, I think if you think about where 
um, things had sort of finished for the time being. I was being held up as a revolting example of womanhood. And I'd got very iconic female writers and feminists also so willing to write negative derogatory things about other women. And I found that really um, disappointing, confusing. And um, I, I don't exaggerate when I say devastating, devastating. You looked for a solution. I looked for a solution. I thought, um, I'm not proud, but I thought, how do I really, what do I do here to hold my ground? And just, you know, there's there's a segment of me that goes, just to get you back, I'm going to kill you with calm and consciousness and proactivity, and you're going to get it because you nearly destroyed me, and I'm responsible for almost allowing that to happen. But I'm a human being, first and foremost. So I came right back and I spoke to the British Fashion Council, of which I was vice chairman at the time. So I was fulfilling a dual yes. role. So I was speaking on behalf of my industry. Yes. But then yes. also I felt, you know, I was in my 20s. So I was grown up, but I was still quite lively in experience yes. as a woman, you know. <laughs> and so I thought, right, let, let's give them, uh, let's give them a solution. So I said... We don't actually have a space to manifest um, our concerns, our rights to um, basic human Mm. um, Mm. um, food, Mm. shelter, Mm. uh, and a place to feel that you could exchange confidential information and concerns with your colleagues in a safe space. And be vulnerable. To be vulnerable vulnerable and be vulnerable um so I made it happen <laughs> and I went to B&Q on the old Kent road and bought about 20 liters of paint and I rented building in Covent Garden and I made it good for fashion week and then I opened a center welcoming models to um rest to feel that they were absolutely accepted as they were, and to have access to a medical doctor, um, an osteopath, a nutritionist, um, three cooked meals a day. And it was my answer to the, yes, I hear you, but let me show you how you do this um, in a decent, um, open-minded and self-empowered way. I'm not going to control any other human being. It is not my job to do that but what I can do hopefully um, is inspire them to be self-sufficient and to be self-advocates so self-advocacy was a very key part of all of the mentoring sessions Mm. we did together Mm. and um, I produced a student newspaper so I wanted fashion students and models to work together to break down the idea of um, the balance of power because Often um, the designer is the big hoo-ha and the model is the muse, mm. which all sounds lovely, doesn't it? Quite polite. But for me, it's always been quite a passive role. Mm. Mm. No matter how lovely your frock, it sort of just isn't enough, you know, because you can't have one without the other. It's a very dynamic dual yes. role. And, and so we talked a lot about the issues that model were, uh, models were 
faced with. And there was a lot of um, anger and confusion around treatment of models via their agents mm. and the people that were supposed to be helping them, guiding them and educating mm. them. Bearing in mind, we're, you know, my, my core age group of visitors, which was um, at its height over 300 visitors a day, mm. um, was between 16 and 21. Wow. Yeah. So I would suggest that although that's a very, it's a very sort of self-explorative part of your life, mm. isn't it? It defines, I think, who you emerge as, who you're starting to mm. become. And the danger of having people impose their limitations on who they think you are is very dangerous ground because self-esteem is low. Mm. Therefore, there's less chance for models working in the industry to boundary, to self-advocate. Mm. And to follow through on their rights and the importance of boundaries. Mm. We did it in a very kind of artistic, creative, gentle, hopefully, um, holistic way. You, you basically, I mean, what I would suggest is that you gave resources that previously had never, ever been there before. Mm-hmm. Ever, ever. I don't know no. about other countries, but I, ca- I can say that in the UK, that you were the first to offer a community yeah. approach to an industry that had essentially been, um, I think that I would suggest that models had been kept mute. And you gave them a voice, you gave them a, a community to have a voice within. I gave them the opportunity to develop, to develop safely and in an empowered way their own voices. Mm. I was the facilitator. Mm. And then they were the ones that were bold and brilliant enough to go out and and reinforce the things that they believed in that they perhaps never really were quite sure how to how to kind of realize that. And you, you have to think culturally as well, you know, there are no specific qualifications when it comes to modeling or acting or performing really you know there aren't there aren't specific exams you do to pass it's just a a collision of dna Mm. right so that's the basis Um, i think that's slightly underestimating how i just would (laughs) like i hang on a second that's uh, hang on hang on hang on hang on i'm not having that no i'm not having that i'm not having that i don't think that being a lifelong successful model entrepreneur career woman mentor has just been a collision of Mm. dna and i know you're just talking about the modeling aspect of it but i actually think i'm going to just say it one more time i said it earlier but actually modeling is one of the most difficult things to do and not just because you're on your feet for a long day but actually the actual modeling aspect of it is actually i think a huge achievement you may carry on now erin i shall let now i've now i've (laughs) what i was going to say was you know but that's just getting your foot yes that's right and um, there's so much more you need to learn and self-educate on because it's not offered to you as a specific service. So we then set about trying to advise models financially. So we had accountants come in and explain what foreign taxes mean and, you know, commission and how to barter fairly and understand your worth and and expectations of how and when you should expect to be paid for the work you carried out transparency with spreadsheets and expenses all the boring stuff that no teen wants to hear but when you think that uh, a model is supposedly or was back then it was sort of changing but not quickly enough they are supposedly in the prime of their career 
they cannot be held responsible or accountable for not managing their own affairs. No, absolutely. People managing them should be um, assisting them in an appropriate and consistent way. Just so amazing. And that wasn't happening. So we set up a model union. So as a founder of a union, we we didn't have one. And again, I'm so not... Hang on a second. I did not know this. You started the models union. So I was one of the founding members of the model union because guess what? We didn't have one. (gasps) So that speaks volumes in itself, doesn't it? And again, it's not about bashing, but this is about understanding the importance of um, a working... Um, model a working say? a working model for models to work within yeah, yeah I can tell you I can tell you right now that your working class ancestors are very proud of you Erin for setting up a union to represent the modeling it the modeling world most excellent you know what? women I wanted to represent yes because first and foremost that is what we yes are. yes know, we model for a living we're not models. yes we model and we perform for a living it's your career so, so there's a difference. And um, so just going back, I faltered a bit, but designers, so fashion students and models came together for the first time mm. and they all worked together within this sort of community house. Mm. And we started a um, student newspaper and we talked about issues in a way that we knew would have really quick access to members of the fashion industry. It all We produced a newspaper every day so that fashion journalists, um, students would, would air their yes. moment of expertise yes. and fashion. Yes. And you, I got an amazing team of girls, amazing team of women who were producing excellent, really thought-provoking work. Um, and then they were able to, to kind of um, use their skills to get it out there right. in a way. But for me, the, the, the mission was to change the template, to put our future creators together early on and sort of change the dynamic also changing the vocabulary changing like actually when you've got press that are representing very successful models like you in such a derogatory way what you're doing (laughs) is you're going this is the reality and what we're going to we're going to give you the opportunity to read the truth you you were a truth seeker and a a truth provider in an industry that was wrapped up in cotton wool and lies and had no support for the women that were working in it and uh that's exactly it. So it, I was a provider, not a provocateur. And there's a big difference. And I think it's how you... Um, oh, it's with just women. so brilliant. It's so brilliant. Oh, my <laughs> God, literally, I knew I was in love with you. Now I'm, like, completely in love with you. And how did Beyond the Catwalks grow out of that? What Did it grow out of that? Well, so this is where it gets a bit heavy. So bear with me because... Um, a lot of really bad stuff had to happen before people were responsive mm. and changed their mindset. And I talk as much a, a, about people outside the industry as much as those within working within the industry. So as part of kind of re-educating myself and trying not to be defensive around certain organisations mm. – um, I invited a um, eating disorders charity to come into the model sanctuary, yes. and she had suggested to me something that um, would have sounded so outlandish, and it was so before its time that we set up an organisation. No, not set up the organisation. I decided to do that. 
but based on the fact that she said, why can't we just have different body shapes on the catwalk? Mm. And it blew my mind because mm. I had not had that mm. thought process before. Mm. And I was a bit kind of gutted. Mm. But also I knew I was up against what kind of almost felt like the impossible. Mm. Mm. And then I thought, well, hang on a minute here. We are a creative industry. Mm. You know, why is our, why do we hold such a limited remit of what beauty really mm. means? Surely we, sh- we have the design creative credentials to showcase women at their mm. best who are all uniquely themselves. Mm. And it's a daunting thing to take to people because it wasn't working. It really wasn't working. So um, along with my, my two founders, um, one of the trickiest things to do was to relay the message mm. and how what that looked mm. like. So I came up with all walks beyond mm. the cap. Mm. This is facilitating women to feel brilliant and the best that they can be where they don't necessarily look like or identify with what they've sort of almost been imposed mm. with in terms of idealistic beauty expectations. Mm. And the other reason I felt so personally about it was that it was kind of dangerous, you know, um, grown women without realising how young a lot of the um, girls were Mm. modelling women's clothing, Mm. their bodies, their minds and bodies were not yet fully formed. Mm. And yet they held the stage and projected to the world the beauty ideal of what we as women should Mm. look like. And so many women feed into it. I don't care who you are, how old you are, whether you're on the front row, on your laptop, we are all influenced. And we break that down and say, no, I'm not going to believe into that. But the danger is, is that too many women were, but they didn't have the full backstory. They didn't know that girls were 13 and 14 and modeling women's clothing on the runway. And so there's two things at play here. I felt like I needed to protect minors Mm. who could represent themselves Mm. properly. But I also needed to protect the audience, no matter where they were, from thinking that this was the only way to look and feel. So it then became a real sort of societal Mm. um, issue for Mm. me, a challenge to speak to a wider audience. So we were just really, really missing um, representation. Mm. So I rang a few friends Mm. and I invited them to support us on this endeavour to design an outfit Mm for a woman of their choice that didn't necessarily represent what we had been exposed mm. to. And then I got my mate, <laughs> Nick Knight, mm. <laughs> to do a shoot with me. And he let me take the pictures and he was just the best, most patient, humble servant I've ever had. He always said, oh, I'm just your servant. I'm here to assist you. You're doing this. You're taking the pictures. And it was so empowering because we had these incredible women all together and they really did look like the business. Mm. And with each one, um, they held a letter and I came up with the slogan, size me up. Mm. And it was inviting people to say, come on then, Mm. what have you got to say for yourselves? Mm. Here I am, Mm. not going anywhere. Mm. This is me. And it it all boils down to, in the end for me, identity. Mm. Um, I think it's really, really, really important for any woman 
to be at peace with and celebrate her identity. And in order to do that, we do need to be able to see someone. And this is this is not just about women and shapes and sizes. It's also about minority groups and different um, cultures and races. That's what I mean. Yeah, if we can't Absolutely. see anyone that looks like us at all, Thank it's you. very difficult. And what, what I find really interesting, um, and I don't know whether you have any thoughts on this, but because I think what 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 you did with um that project is you also exposed the industry that were saying that you were an alternative because the industry was saying look we we can do we can do androgyny which is the term that they that they described for you and a few other models at the, at the same time we look at us how clever we are we're inclusive we're not all you know, um, Giselle or, or, or whoever, L, L kind of, look at us, how clever we are. But actually the truth is, is that, again, it was a muse. It was, and, and not the nice kind of muse, it was a ruse. <laughs> it was a ruse. Yeah, it was a ruse, not a muse. It was a ruse because, because actually we were being kidded into thinking the industry was actually... Uh, more open-minded than it was what you exposed was the fact that it wasn't open-minded at all and that that women weren't being and and even when they were it was being controlled it wasn't true freedom no no and um we're still not there really because uh we can't just advertise in fashion that we're doing this it has to trickle down to every level and every place in society and being respectful of I think historically I think that uh, one of the things that I'm quite passionate about is not beating up the past too much because we were where we were and the truth is is that uh, women's body shapes uh, because because we've had we're fundamentally in this part of the world living in a time of uh, much more affluence you know our grandmothers were all actually there wasn't put it really basically there wasn't as much um nurture there wasn't as much food there wasn't as much um overindulgence and stuff like that um so there's there's that aspect of it exactly access to our parents in the same way exactly it you know so i mean i look it, it was definitely a work in progress and um we were sometimes laughed at and we were not taken seriously and i remember and and he will remain unnamed going no one cares it's not going to change and I often struggle with confidence but my saving grace is stubbornness I may go in quietly but I always commit oh is that what your your biggest asset is is it your stubborn because I was about to say to you Erin that um one of the things I've been really moved by in this chat is that I feel so, so much of the work. So I'm, I'm an actor and a filmmaker. This work for me is about losing my mum to ovarian cancer. All of this work that I do about helping women be freer in themselves is to stop other women ignoring symptoms. And, and, and that, that, that comes from all angles. So it's not just about talking about gynecology. It's about just really deeply knowing and accepting yourself as a woman. And I was about to suggest that perhaps I see... A, a, a mirror in you that you had these awful experiences where you were misrepresented in the press and like me therefore lost and had a grief around that and therefore and but rather than becoming a victim of it you flipped it and turned it into something amazing and if that's stubbornness then then thank you for being stubborn I'm not sure <laughs> I, I'm not sure yeah. that stubborn is is quite I think you're a trailblazer personally and I also would like to know where the journalist lives that said you were stupid because I I just I mean like 
like literally one of the most clever, conscious human beings I've ever spoken to. So anyway. I think I just pissed her off that I didn't react. But no, that I know, I understand that it wasn't it wasn't what she really thought. She was just she was just trying to sell papers, Erin. And also, I think she was just really angry. And, you know, let's maybe try and sympathise with her backstory. Yeah. Uh, it took me years to be able to say yeah. that and really mean it. But, what, the backstory of just needing know. to sell papers? <laughs> That's the backstory. <laughs> Whatever that means. And um, um, it took me quite a long time to recover from it. You know, a lot of positive um, things were implemented from yeah. it. But it was toll on me I think mentally and physically yeah. and I I think I had realized then that the only way I was kind of going to be able to continue um in my industry was to really kind of fiercely boundary and again you're taken right back to your beginning aren't mm. you and my upbringing was all about if you felt good it was because you were a good girl mm. and a good girl was a girl that was compliant mm. Accepting mm. of what they were told and the information they mm. were fed and my mom and dad always remind me that when I was three my first teacher said to them it's a good job she's cute because she'll never be bright wow wow so quite really hard for my own self-esteem yeah. never mind answering anybody else's issues and feelings and thoughts on my being just on my presence yeah and by the time I reached 11 uh my maths teacher sat my parents down I was in the middle of them at a parents evening he said she's never going to get her maths GCSE she just she just doesn't get it she hasn't Mm. got it and do you know what the truly awful thing about receiving that kind of limitation is is that you believe it Mm. and then you lean Mm. on it and then you give up Mm. and you stop and you have less of an idea of your rights mm. and who you are mm. and how you lift yourself up out of this negativity mm. and evolve and you come into your mm. own. There was no support. Mm. Mm. The fact that she, he felt they could see, say that so freely. It was very bad when we were young, I think, schools and before. it. I do believe it's, it's better today. I think um, one of the... We're coming, we're running out of time, but I just, one of the what? things that I, uh, I know there's definitely going to be part two um, or, or, or a little collab coming. Uh, the, yeah. the, um, the, well, something I heard recently, which I just went, oh yes, I'm keeping that one. It's very close to my heart is that we gain self-esteem by doing esteemable things. And I would suggest that you have spent, I just, you know, that's what I hear is that you've spent your life doing esteemable things. And I know that everyone listening will be able to identify with everything that you've said. Their experiences may not be, you know, on the London catwalk or jetting around the world uh, in their 20s. But the bottom line is, is that these conversations we're having are universal for women in general about how we come home to ourselves and make peace. And you have two sons. Um, What are you doing different to raise them, Erin? It's for the the future of women. (laughs) Well... First of all, um, I have a six-year-old and a two-year-old, so their needs are very different, though they're both very vocal and very able um, in terms of enunciating their position. Are they? Which, which I really welcome. Yeah. And I 
please say to both of them, I want the full range of emotions. I, give me all the emotions. Because as much as I'm very determined to bring them up. As um, feminists. <laughs> yes, as feminists, but as themselves without too much um, bombardment of what it means to be a masculine male boy, whatever you want to call it. Because I can see the pressure my son's under already. Yeah. So, for example, someone said to him, um, see, I know what how I want to raise him. I want him to be kind, mm. compassionate, mm. and open-minded. Mm. And I want him to grow up to eventually really be appreciative of exactly how sensitive he is. Because I always tell him that's his superpower. Mm. Nobody can lessen yeah. it. It just, it's a that you're uncomfortable with it. And I say to him, you see those things you don't like so much about yourself? I love them the most right now. I'm holding them. I love them hard. Yeah. Okay. So what we have now is this brilliant relationship where, you know, he is really able to express the full range of emotions, which he should. Yeah. However, in the outside world, it's not so easy because as soon as he closes the front door, He's hearing things like, which we've discussed, oh, don't cry like a girl. Yeah, yeah. And not only is that devastating to him, his right to express, it's also undermining and patronising women, calling us out as the weaker species of the two. Also, um, where do your emotions go if you can't voice and express them? You know, and... There is still that bravado present, I think, where boys are exposed to a certain way of behaving. And that also happens within school. I remember um, going away for a job and the teacher saying, oh, um, is mum away this week? And um, I said I had been away. And she wasn't being malicious in any way, but it's an important thing to, to mention because she said, oh, well, that's why he's being uncomfortable and acting up. Right. So, because you were, there, because as a woman you're working. Yeah, I'd worked and I had chosen to work, um, and that's why he was struggling. Mm. And it took me a while to digest it and figure out exactly what I felt about mm. that, and trying to strike the balance of being a present mum mm. and a present mm. woman within my industry Mm, mm, mm. and um it's a challenge but it's an important thing to exercise equally in front of him do you feel that the industry that your industry just just before we close looping back to that conversation right at the start of the podcast where i was saying that a young woman in the film industry is currently campaigning for creches to be in work I don't know if this is true. I'm going to say it anyway. But to a certain extent, you could probably say, okay, I'm at the stage when I want to have children, but I kind of know that I'm still going to get to work. Like you sort of knew that once you'd come, well, first of all, you got to model when you were pregnant because there are amazing photographs of that. But you kind of, you'd, you'd landed at a stage where you were, to a certain, it's never completely secure, but there was a level of security with yourself and your work that it was a choice for you to do it. But there are many work, women working as models and in other industries as well who it doesn't feel like that's the choice they could have. It actually feels like, and I felt like this, it's either children or not children. Do you think that the modelling 
field specifically would benefit from having creches on set. Do you think that women should be able to take their children with them to work, their babies, more more specifically, preschool years, to work with them? I've taken both my sons to work with me because I was breastfeeding. Mm. So in between shots, I had to eat and calm myself down for my milk to drop mm. and then the boys would feed and um, <laughs> the pads would go back in my bras and I'd get my next look on. But yes, it, it is something I'm still working out because being a self-employed woman, which is first and foremost what I am, mm. um, I have to look at how I protect my children, but how I continue to work. And I don't necessarily want to expose them to my world. Actually, yes. Just yet. yes. But what do that means that actually then I have to pull back especially whilst they're in their little years their formative and everything they're locking in is forever um if I work less then I'm going to earn less Mm. and then I have to live slightly differently Mm. and I have to that um because what's more important um well in fact there isn't a definitive answer there they're both important to me and they're both really yeah healthy states to exist in and, and, and live by. So I wouldn't necessarily suggest they're anti, but I wouldn't necessarily, I would argue that I wouldn't necessarily say it's proactive to have a space for children in that environment. Mm. In the same way, as I've evolved as a working model, a lot mm. of, um, so here's the flip side. So a lot of brands are very keen for me to model with my children. Yeah. And, of course, this is my choice. I say um, that's so lovely, but no thank you very much because I want to preserve my children and their identity and their life and their right to being exactly who they are and who they are. Their innocence. Yeah. Their innocence. And um, it's not their life. And do I want to um, have them working in a sort of commoditized way? Um, or are they going to kill me when they get to 16 saying mum I'd have a few grand in the bank (laughs) (laughs) but it's the lama I think I'm always trying to balance and work out for me but equally on their behalf so um yeah it's interesting that I want the full package now that I've lived longer I've become a woman uh with children a lot of clients and brands want the whole shebang but I feel very instinctually that I want to protect their rights I want them to be who they are and not feel in any way led well Erin Erin O'Connor I can tell you right now that your children have chosen well because I do really believe that children come in and choose their mothers and you are an incredibly conscious human being and what you've just spoken about then about tuning into your own intuition because all we've got is today you can't tell how they're going to be when they're 16 but the one thing that you are teaching them is to tune into their own gut because by doing that they will they will do as you do not as you say so by following your own choices and making sure that even if it, it might be in two years time you might look back and think oh I wish I'd done that yeah. but it's like as long as we're as we I think as women as long as we're highly aligned in this moment yes yeah it's very important self-forgiveness is mm. everything it everything. really is and whenever I think of parenting or womaning um 
I just say to myself, you know, particularly with being a mum, I just say, just be good enough. Yeah. They've got the balance of the real you. Otherwise, what are you creating? Yeah. And I think all of these dual roles uh, ha- have come where instead of fighting against my sensitivity or vulnerability, I'm trying to embrace it. I think telling the truth is really, really important for anybody who cares to listen to what we've talked about today. Erin O'Connor, that was the most amazing chat. Thank you so much for coming on the Happy Vagina podcast. You're going to make a lot of vaginas very happy. Can I just say, I told my dad last night, I was like, Dad, just to let you know, I'm talking about my happy vagina tomorrow. And he did the usual thing where he went, okay. (laughs) And we didn't even touch on your vagina. (laughs) Too much to talk about. Part two is definitely, I'm going to have to line you up for another one. Get get on the phone, we'll do it. It's been an honour talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and letting me speak today. And I want to say a very special thank you to our sponsors of this week's episode, Venus. Shaving your pubic hair with the wrong tools can cause things like irritation, itch during regrowth and ingrown hairs. That's why the new Venus for Pubic Hair and Skin Collection is designed specifically for the pubic area. Whether the hair is there, growing or gone, the full collection is pH balanced and free of parabens, dyes, fragrance and silicone and is also dermatologist and gynaecologist approved. You can try the new Venus for Pubic Hair and Skin Collection for yourself in-store or online at Boots. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.